Marshall Crenshaw had me at hello. Actually, he had me at from my window nearly every day. The first words on the first song, There She Goes Again, on his first album. Ever since, his music has brought me unbridled joy. Welcome to Before the Cheering Started. I'm Bud Mishkin. It's a podcast all about the journey to success, the early obstacles, plan Bs, the doubt, and the passion to push forward. It is said that trying to analyze why a joke is funny is the death of comedy. Something similar can be said about why we love a song. Sure, there are compelling lyrics, a great beat, beautiful melody, and harmony. But in the end, we just love it. And love is all you need. Marshall Crenshaw's first album hit the scene and the airwaves in 1982, and for many of us, it was love at first listen. The indie label Yep Rock Records is re-releasing the debut album, simply called Marshall Crenshaw, plus some extra songs, and Marshall's second album, Field Day, and his concerts are promoting 40 years in showbiz. There have been several wonderful albums during those 40 years, and he's been an inspiration for numerous bands that followed, like Gin Blossoms. Marshall co-wrote the Gin Blossoms hit, Till I Hear It From You. He's always been thoughtful about music and the history of the music that he first heard growing up in one of America's great music cities, Detroit. So Marshall, when I was growing up in upstate New York, about an hour and a half north of the city, and we pretty much listened to one radio station, WABC, on the radio and heard all sorts of great music of the time. But at night, I would go out to the car and turn on the car radio because it would be really cool. You could get out of town stations. Right. And one station was, I still remember, CKLW, the Motor City. Yeah. And I'm just curious as a starting off point, the power of the radio growing up. Were you a listener and what were you hearing? Yeah, the power of the radio was uh, omnipresent or, you know, was powerful. <laughs> always, you know, I mean, uh, my dad always had the car radio on. Um, always had the rock and roll station on, whichever one it was. Uh, let me see. There was WXYZ. There was WJBK. You know, those are the ones that we could get. Um, if we'd been in the city of Detroit, we could have gotten more because there were some stations that were just Detroit stations. And as soon as you went north of eight mile, as soon as you went north of eight mile road, the signal dropped off. Those were the the R and B stations. You know, we couldn't get those. I was only three miles outside of the city, but I couldn't get those stations at all out there. WCHB. But uh, no, yeah, I grew up with the radio always. It, um, and TV too. We were, as kids, we were like binge watchers of TV shows. It just, it was always on. Uh, and so, yeah, we were bombarded all the time by TV and the, and the radio. Uh, I read somewhere that early on, <clears throat> whenever you'd see somebody playing a Fender guitar on the, ra- on the TV, you were kind of yeah that's really true yeah i would be riveted by that you know it was uh there was buddy merrill on the lawrence welk show he was a fender endorser and uh buddy holly i saw on the ed sullivan show 
that was one of the first times I ever saw somebody playing one of those things. And there's another band called the Sparkle Tones, Joe Bennett and the Sparkle Tones. They had a hit record called Black Slacks. <laughs> and uh, I saw them on TV at least once. And they had two Stratocasters in the band. But yeah, it, just to see those things, uh, they just like blew my mind, you know, the sight of them. And on records too, you could hear the difference. You could, there was a certain guitar sound that I liked when I was a little kid and I eventually realized it was the sound of, you know, that just that presence that the Fender guitars had, the way the sound just cut through everything. You I, know. Um, I'm really amused by the, the image of a, a future great rock and roll mu musician, which you are watching the Lawrence Welk show. That's an interesting combination right there. You can see Buddy Merrill on YouTube uh, on the Lawrence Welk show. And he was, I mean, I love that style of playing that he had, that kind of jazzy Western swing style. He played on a Fender guitar. To, I love that sound. You know? And so is there a, a, like a seminal moment? Everybody, of course, always talks about the Beatles being on Sullivan, but I, I understand you're playing guitar before then. Is there a, like a, a moment or a time in your life early on where like, oh, I don't just like this. I want to do this. I don't even remember when it was. But yeah, when the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan, I was already on the path, right? And I would have been on the path whether they ever happened or didn't, you know. But uh, I, I one thing I've cited once or twice at least is... Uh, the, just these two records that were on the radio at the same time that made me decide I wanted to finally really learn to play guitar because I'd had a guitar before then for a couple of years, but I thought, well, now I really have to learn how to play. And that was a, a wild one, one called Wild Weekend by the Rebels. Uh, just this really great rock and roll record and then the solo this guitar solo of louie louie by the kingsman mm -hmm. that those two things just blew my mind simultaneously and uh i also like this guy trini lopez who was around then too sure i loved his his guitar playing so maybe that was like the perfect storm confluence thing that made me want to really start to play you know i mean i guess i was nine nine years old eight, nine, 10 years old when those records were out. And your folks were uh, supportive of this uh, musical, what started out as a hobby, I would imagine? Yeah, I, I had, you know, my parents were really great and they kind of stood out. Now that I think back, they really did. I think about situations that other kids were in in my own family <clears throat> and in my peer group too, where they just had really kind of toxic people for parents, right? There's a lot of that around me. Mm -hmm. But my own parents were just, they were, you know, they always let us know that they loved us. They just always did the best they could for us. And that's that's more than a lot of kids can say that I remember that I grew up with. So yeah. I just was really lucky that way. And they, they were supportive, you know, and uh, so, and, you know, they understood that I was musical. And uh, so I had piano lessons and whatever else, you know. 
So you never, or did you have to have the conversation with them at some point? I don't know, maybe you're 16 or 17, like other musicians I've talked to, where you have to sit them down and say, hey, you know, I'm going to do this. And, and they have to be talked into it. Or was there no conversation that was necessary along those lines? Well, you know, I think I was telling them that, like, I don't, from way, way back early in childhood, I was telling them that. And, they, you know, they thought it was cute. And uh, as time went on, though, you know, and I it got to be more serious, it did, I think, worry them somewhat, you know. They were the first two people in their own families to ever graduate from college. And I just couldn't stand to be in a school situation and started to kind of screw up in school by about fifth grade. Somebody had the bright idea to put me in school early. They thought that that would be a good idea to send me to kindergarten at age four instead of age five. So therefore I was always like one of the little kids in my class. And uh, in that way and maybe other ways too, I just was like out of my element in school anyway. Although, I mean, I didn't have a bad, like a, any traumas or, or anything, but anyway, I just, you know, they knew that I didn't like school. That, that was really kind of a shocker to them. Were you able Looking to play back, any guitar in school? Yeah, there were, by the time I was in my teens or in high school, junior high school, the Beatles had come out. And so like every other kid in my class wanted to play a guitar, you know, and so there were, you could, you could start bands and there were bands at my, at the schools I went to. There was even this one kid, I got to high school from junior high and I thought, well, I'm going to be the best guitar rock guitar player in my high school. That's the way it is. That's 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 how it works, you know. But then I saw this other kid who was obviously had a better mind than I had and could could play like above the eighth fret of the guitar and and, and just knew more and could think better. And that shocked me to see other kids who, you know, who were good or better than I was and smarter than I was. But anyhow, it just, so yeah, there was a lot of that going on, but it was a big thing by the time I was in high school to be in a rock band. When, when most of us think of Detroit and music in the sixties, <clears throat> understandably we first go to Motown. Yeah. But there was a scene outside of that. And, and uh, you've talked about uh, your love for the band and the MC five. Uh, for you as a teenager playing guitar, what was the music scene around your town and around your area like in terms of getting a chance to play? Well, there were many, many scenes, just like more than we could even discuss, you know, uh, in Detroit. The, the musical culture of Detroit is 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 a monumental thing, you know, mm -hmm. and, and diverse and vast and all that stuff. But uh the town is, I read a book about Detroit rock music called Grit, Noise, and Revolution, mm -hmm. which is a book, you know, you can get that one. But the guy points out how all the little communities in the Detroit area, including mine, they were like little islands almost, you know, and real insular unto themselves, right? And I remember... One time, some friends of mine, we wanted to go check out this music store that we heard about in this town. 
about 20 miles away from us called Allen Park. And we went over there and, you know, and it's just another suburban town like ours. No, you know, they're all generic little suburban towns. But we were over there in Allen Park and we were like, ooh, Allen Park, you know. These people are weird over here in Allen Park. You know, that's how that's how it was. It was all these little towns, like this kind of insularity in each of them. But <clears throat> the scene, I don't know, it was just a kind of a, I can't think of anything too remarkable about the scene in my own particular town. It was just kids that were in rock bands. So is there a notion as you're getting older of, hey, if I want to do this, I need to leave this place and get out and go somewhere else in order to really make a go of this? Yeah, I finally had that realization when I was about 22. Oh, so it was, a little, it was a little while after school. So you were in Detroit doing yeah, it for a yeah, while. Yeah, after after high school, I, you know, I was in a band with guys that I'd gone to high school with. And uh, just, again, stuck in this little insular situation that I was right. afraid to to break out of. And, uh, but finally, it, it all kind of dissolved around me. So I'm like, okay, now I, 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 uh, I just wanted to get out of there at, 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 at finally, right. where it's, I just, I got to get out of here and just completely clear my head and get to square one. So another, did that. another musician I've talked to told me that, uh, like if you stay in the town that you grew up in, especially if you grew up not in a huge city, but in like a even a suburb or a small town, like you can't reinvent yourself or, or, or around the people that you know, like, oh, you can't be a rock and roll musician. I've known you since I'm five, you know, and you're you're that person. So you kind of need to leave in order to really spread your wings. That's really true. Yeah. You, you know, you, if you if you're just surrounded by people who think they know you, yeah, it can be really intimidating. But you know, it's it's not just rock musicians. You know, it seems like like young men have to kind of go on an odyssey, right? right. Like my dad, at you know, at some point, he started to break away from his environment that he'd grown up in, and he was just like hitchhike around the country. Finally, joined the navy. You know, got out into the world. It was just, it's just a thing that he had to do. And I, I figured that's just a common thing, you know. Was that a story that he talked about? <clears throat> and did that kind of get in, in like when you were younger, like get into your head, like, you know, you, you can do that? Sort of, yeah. I even did look into joining the Navy at one time. But uh, my girlfriend, who's still my girlfriend and also my wife, just forbid me to do it at one point. I, I went to the recruiting office twice. And I think the second time she took me there and waited outside. And I came out and she just said, you know what, forget it. <laughs> you, can be, you can't do it, you know. Well, but I, anyhow, you know, my, my dad was kind of secretive about his youth with me. Like he didn't want me to emulate him. I don't know right. why not, you know. He was always like that. There's just well, certain things he wouldn't tell me. And then he told me a lot of stuff when he was dying that he never told me up until then. And I'm like, well, why did that have to be a secret? It's not a big deal. you know. Well, in terms of your uh, not going into the Navy, can I say, uh, representing the people who have loved your music from day one, uh, thank you to your 
then girlfriend and now wife because yeah. uh, that well worked. you know what the, the real truth is the guy that i was talking to at the recruiter was hyping me about all the music programs they had and stuff because i told him i was interested in music but i wouldn't have been able to cut it in the navy band because those those music programs in the military are really serious really yeah you have to go if you know if, if you don't go in there and have had some training then you're going to get some from them and it's like that was exactly the kind of thing that i had already decided i, I couldn't handle you know is a school and regimentation right. and all that stuff like that i might not even have been able to get into the music programs in the navy they mm -hmm. might have just said no you can't you're not good enough and then where would i have been you know mm -hmm. so uh, i was right yeah it would have been a mess if i, I know a little bit about my job the love of a guitar, uh, although not on yeah. a professional level. So can I imagine, uh, uh, I understand you got one stolen early on and it was a pretty uh, nice one. I can imagine that that's not a great night in the Crenshaw household. No, it was really bad, you know. I made a lot of barbecue sauce to pay for that guitar and <laughs> a lot of uh, sweet sauce and hot sauce and coleslaw to pay for that guitar but it was a gibson les paul and uh i you know i'd really kind of dreamed of having one before i got it and one night you know i went to play uh at this kind of drunken brawl party out in the woods somewhere with all these crazy people in michigan and uh we had the equipment in my mother's station wagon and I turned my back for two seconds with the door unlocked. And that was it. My guitar and, and the bass player's bass were gone. Just immediately, as soon as we got there, somebody swooped down, saw that the car door was unlocked, and that was that. And yeah, it was really bad, you know. But I look back now at that Les Paul that I had, and I realized that it was a dog of a Les Paul because... <laughs> Forgive me if you're a, like a Les Paul aficionado, but it's really, really easy to find a bad Les Paul out mm -hmm. there. And the one I had, it weighed like, it seemed like it weighed a ton. <laughs> and it had a big clunky headstock and everything like that. But yeah, oh yeah, it was a trauma when I lost that guitar. It was it's just terrible. So when you leave the Detroit area, you said you're in your early 20s and you head out west is the feeling like oh this is great i'm gonna i'm gonna <clears throat> try it as a musician i'm gonna make it as a musician or do you do it with some trepidation no i was i was like just fully gung-ho about it and and like never back down from that and uh it was cool because i realized later on that as soon as i got out to la I was immediately in the world that I wanted to be in. And I didn't really even know it right at the moment. But what happened was I went out there with this friend of mine to audition for his band. And the rehearsal studio that they were in was this basement space on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard. And it's a famous corner and I can't remember the cross street anymore, but there was a porn theater and an army surplus store. We were down in this basement space rehearsing and I got friendly with the owner of the business mm -hmm. 
because he had a Georgie Fame 45 sitting behind his desk. So I started a conversation with this guy. That's pretty good. It turned out to be a guy named Brendan Mullen. He had some kind of accent from the British Isles. Mm -hmm. It might have been Scottish. But anyway, Brendan Mullen, I met this guy. And then about a year later, a year and, and change later, I was in the West Coast Company of Beatlemania doing the show on at the Pantages Theater on Hollywood Boulevard, just a couple blocks from where that place had been. And I decided to go back and say hello to Brendan. And he remembered me and we talked and he said, you know, I'm just about to clear out of here and vacate this place. But during the time that you were gone, it was a venue and it was a, it had been a place called The Mask, M-A-S-Q-U-E, mm -hmm. which was like the birthplace of the L.A. punk scene. Mm -hmm. he, he, he switched it from a rehearsal studio to a, to a club about, you know, a month after I wasn't there anymore. And I went back and this whole, he just told me this whole thing happened, you know, during that time. And so that's where I set foot as soon as I got to LA. It was like, I was there already. And I don't know if I would have found a place in that scene if I had managed to stay in LA or not, right. maybe not, but I never speculate about, oh, what might've happened if this other thing didn't happen? Because I know that what, what happened is what happened, but. Anyway, my point is, as soon as I left the Detroit area and went west of the Mississippi and got to L.A., I was on the right path and I knew it, you know, so I just kept stepping. I think a lot of generations <laughs> or younger generations don't quite get that the role that Beatlemania, the show Beatlemania played in the mid and late 70s. It was like, you know, only a few years after the breakup of the band, everybody's doing solo work. John Lennon's still alive. But the whole notion of looking back on it, as far as I can see the whole notion of looking back on it only just kind of started when that show Beatlemania, which was a very popular show on Broadway and road companies too, uh, got started. How did you get the call for it? Well, I mean, in the first place, yeah, people were just like heartbroken that the Beatles wouldn't get back together, you know, like the whole pop culture masses, including me. I mean, I like it really made me so sad when when there was no more Beatles you know like the 60s turned into the 70s and now there's no more Beatles there's no more Jimi Hendrix Motown split from Detroit and went to LA my my world was just crumbling all around me right and uh and these smart guys in New York City had to capitalize on this heartache that people had about the Beatles and and, and create fake Beatles, you know, and it worked. People bought it. Uh, but how did I get the call? Um, while I was, I, le I left Michigan, went to California. I didn't get into my friend's band. I didn't pass the audition. But the singer of the band did a really nice thing for me, and he hooked me up with this other gig. And I had to drive from L.A. to Elko, Nevada to get this gig. But I could have it as soon as I showed up. I could I could be in this band, and and it was a working band, you know. So I made the drive all by myself from L.A. to Elko. Met these people I never met before. Was on stage with them the next night, <laughs> and and I'm on this road trip with them, you know, for like six months. I'm out there, and somehow in the middle of all that, I I saw this ad in Rolling Stone magazine, open casting call for Beatlemania 
and I knew what Beatlemania was, and I called the 212 number from my motel room, and they said, yeah, just send in a picture and a tape, and, you know, we'll take it from there, see what happens, and, and so I did that, and I wound up getting in the show. It's really, it's wild, but that's how it happened, you know. I've, and it I've just opened the door, opened the door to the rest of my life, you know. We love those doors. Yeah. Yeah, we love those doors. Um, I've read that you said you learned life lessons from the Beatlemania experience. How so? Well, you know, I better have because, you know, <laughs> like growing up, time is passing and I'm, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it just was a world like a whirlwind of uh, of new experience. As soon as I left the Detroit area, yeah, it just kept coming and coming. It was like really a good move on my part. Uh, I just all these things flooding in and uh, plus seeing the country just like microscopic detail almost, mm -hmm. you know, first the West, all these places that I never could have imagined before, like Wyoming, you know, it's almost like you're on another planet, you know, driving along. And was coming to New York eventually or the New York area a slam dunk for you or... Was there some wondering, oh, maybe I should stay out in Los Angeles, stay out west, or, oh, no, I got to get to New York? No, I wound up in New York because of Beatlemania, and that was unplanned. I had this moment in my life where it could have been door number one or door number two, hmm. because I had gotten accepted into this music school in L.A., which was then called the Guitar Institute of Technology, and is now called the Musicians Institute, right? Mm -hmm. And I was going to go. That would have done me some good if I had gone. But anyway, uh, I had that choice, either you know, right or left, uh, music school in L.A. or Beatlemania in New York. And I chose Beatlemania because I own and I had just gotten married, and Beatlemania was a paying gig. Mm -hmm. And the other thing was she'd already been to New York. She went there with her sister, as a high school graduation present, and she really loved it, you know, and was was excited about going back. And my brother Robert was already in New York because he was going to this school called the Institute of Audio Research, and he'd been living there for a few months. So once I got to New York, it was like I immediately fell in love with it from the very on first sight. And plus, you know, there just were other reasons to be there instead of to go back to L.A. I would already walked the walked the streets of L.A. with no money in my pocket. And, you know, I guess I didn't want to repeat that. I'd rather walk the streets of New York with like 10 cents in my pocket rather than the other thing. You know? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, you, those years, those early years in New York, uh, one of my favorite albums of yours is the, the Nine Volt Years. <laughs> album yeah. with you know those early recordings as you first uh, get here is there a principal emotion around those times in terms of how you're feeling about yourself and how you're feeling about your music and your career yeah there first of all it's just elation elation is the is the emotion it's just like this is a moment you know and everybody, like, it was really Robert and Ion and I, you know, we just knew that it was a moment, you know. And I was just was really motivated and inspired and energized and 
So that was it. It was just an amazing feeling, you know. Had you been but, writing songs previous to that, or was New York where you really got serious about writing songs? Yeah, it was it was while I was in Beatlemania that I got really serious that I got serious about writing songs. And I, you know, in the past I had like I would dabble in it a little bit here and there. I'd go through maybe a little period where I'd write a couple songs, but I don't feel like I really was a songwriter until a certain point when I just started to get the ideas for the songs that wound up on my first album and all those ones from that time period. At that point, I'm a song, I'm a songwriter then, you know, but I just, I guess I've been storing it up or something. And I'm always fascinated by it. Uh, that notion of in any art, actually a writer, a, an actor, a musician, at that point and and still now do you know when you have something good do you know when you have a, a a hook that's good do you know when you have a lyric that's good a melody or is it all kind of mysterious no you know when you when something's good or you know you feel that that you know <laughs> you think you know maybe later on you'll change your mind about what you thought you knew anyway yeah yeah you do know that's that's it you know you have to have a sort of like a sense of judgment or a sense of direction about it in order to create a body of work that's like a personal thing you know because you have a point of view about it are there still surprises along the way like are there songs that you you know okay that's okay and then all of a sudden people really love it yeah the whole thing was a surprise you know <laughs> it was a surprise when i could do it and understood that i could do it that was like wow you know it was like so empowering to be able to do this thing you know but yeah i guess the biggest example of that of a surprise kind of thing like that was is that song of mine called you're my favorite waste of time yeah. which i just made up in my head i never, i don't think i ever even wrote it down i was just walking around backstage at the stanley theater in pittsburgh when Beatle, the day before Beatlemania was going to open. And just this little tune got in my head. And and then about two years later, or maybe three, four years later, it wound up being like a giant smash hit in Europe. Not by me, but uh, as recorded by this other person called named Owen Paul. It was a one-hit wonder. But the uh, one hit was, was a song that I wrote, which is nice. And... Also, at, at that moment, the song had gone through this weird little odyssey as far as the publishing rights to it went. And like just before his version came out, everything reverted to me. So when he had this giant hit, I was I was the sole publisher on it and writer. And so it was just like, you know. Hey, for all who the guess <laughs> for all the stories of how musicians have not been been treated fairly through the years you got to celebrate those vic those victories yeah but, and you know what though whenever i was in a situation like that it was always of my own making some stupid things that i did that would get me in a bind but then enough times i was be, would be rescued from my own stupidity that was one time there were other times too enough times where i got rescued from my own recklessness and got so i would have luck good luck instead of instead of the other kind but you know but, you know, i made I, sometimes i made my own bad luck yeah but there's also that's I mean, life 
there's the stuff of the business. There's, you know, uh, the PR arm of the record company all of a sudden all gets fired when you have an album coming out. And and yeah. other stories I've heard from you and from other musicians, is there a point where you're making music, you're making music that's loved by me and by so many other people that when it comes to the business part of it, because it does seem know, from the outside like a business that can really make you bang your head against the wall. It's nuts. Well, you know, I'm not an example of this at all, but it can be toxic. It can mm -hmm. be lethal. I've seen it cause, I've seen it cause people up, cl up close. I've seen it cause people to be, to become lethal to themselves or toxic to themselves. I've seen that lots of times, but that was never going to be me. You know, I got beat up some in the business, not as bad as other people, but you know, it's, 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 it's a very tough business. You know, Why do you think all. you say that was never going to be you? Why so? Cause I was never going to hurt myself cause I was mad at other people. Mm -hmm. I'd rather hurt them, <laughs> but I'm not going to do that either. You know, so, no, I'm, I would. I was never going to be self-destructive. That, that's the last thing I would ever be. I uh, interviewed an actor <clears throat> years ago who's become a friend who was uh, in a very famous movie that became a cultural phenomenon. And when I asked him about it, he said, yeah, but mostly at the time it meant rent. It meant I could pay my rent. And so uh -huh. I understand that aspect of the business of you write a song, it becomes a hit. Like you mentioned the guy in Europe, that's, you know, that's tangible. But is there a way to prepare for the intangible? In other words, and I use myself as an example, people who right now are listening to Marshall Crenshaw music and it's elating them during good times and it's sustaining them in hard times. And then people start expressing that to you. Again, uh, is there a way to kind of prepare for that or respond to that? I don't. I, I. I don't know. <laughs> Is there? Let me see. Uh, no, I think you just have to experience things in order to understand them. Really, somebody can tell you something. You can read about something happening to another person. Do you recall? Then, it? You know, you understand it from a from a remove, but you know, you're right. not going to really. That doesn't really tell you what it's going to be like in your own head to experience whatever it is you're going to experience. When it first started happening with the first album. Do you recall a time when, like, oh, all of a sudden people are really starting to say this to me? Uh, yeah, right away, people loved this, loved what we did. As soon as I got it out the door, people loved it, you know? So, and it, it just is, it's amazing. It's, it's really amazing. And I know, you know, somewhere, even the records of mine that I have mixed feelings about, somewhere in the world, there's somebody who loves that record. You know, even the ones of mine that like have bring back bad memories for me or something or other, at least one person has told me at some point in time that that album got them through a, a rough time in their lives. And so, I mean, all the different things I've heard from people about how the music has affected them and how they've taken it into their hearts and stuff like that, you know, it's... Uh, it's stunning. <laughs> well, I'd say at that point, the music, <clears throat> obviously it's created by you, but it's it's not yours anymore. It's It belongs to them, or at least their oh, yeah, connection yeah. to it belongs to them. Right. I do get that, that the stuff has its own life. You know, yeah. once, you, once you kick it out the door, it can go anywhere. And I learned that with You're My Favorite Waste of Time and all the other stuff. It's like once it's out, once you turn it loose, 
you really can't know what's going to happen with it. And it can be all kinds of incredible. It can come back at, at you in, in all kinds of marvelous ways, you know. Well, it's come at me in marvelous ways. I've loved it for 40 years. And uh, mm. I continue to thank you for it. Well, thank you, Bud. You've always been an ally <laughs> and a pal. And I just, I really do appreciate your engagement. And I'm still learning the... Uh, Still learning the, the rack, this guitar thing that you tried to teach me where you spread your hands and I'm still trying. I'm still trying. Yeah, I still do it every day. That's a really good exercise. Now, I know a few more now, you know, maybe I'll sit down sometime and show you some of those, Bob. Anyhow, you got to right, keep in shape as you get older, right? Trying, trying. Yeah. Marshall Crenshaw. His 1982 debut album, called Marshall Crenshaw, and the 1983 album, Field Day, are both being released with some extra songs by the indie label Yep Rock Records. They are as good and as joyful and musical as the day they were recorded. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written by me. Guitar playing, that's me as well no extra charge. I'm really excited about some upcoming episodes with chef and writer extraordinaire Gabrielle Hamilton, Grammy award-winning record producer Russ Teitelman, Grammy award-winning musician Bobby Sanabria, and comedian, actor, storyteller Chris Gethard. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on The Journey.